Well, this morning we are uh, closing our series on the Lord's Supper, and as we close our series on the Lord's Supper, what I wanted to do was I wanted to look at the Lord's Supper past and future. So I want to look at the scriptures, and I want to see where does this idea of the Lord's Supper come from, this idea of sitting at a table with the Lord, eating a meal. Where does it come from, and where is it going? And so To highlight that storyline in Scripture, we're actually going to begin in the book of Genesis. Uh, Nate will come up for us and read for us from the end of Genesis 1 and in the beginning of Genesis 2. And what I want you to see there is how the Lord created mankind, and then there's this big emphasis on giving mankind food. It says that he gives man every kind of food, and so it's as if he's preparing man for a feast. And then he says that he will give man a day of rest. And so this whole idea in Scripture is that we are given a day of rest and a day of feasting. It begins right there in Genesis. Next, we're going to skip ahead to the book of Exodus and specifically to the Passover meal. See how this was a feast in the presence of the Lord that, uh, that anticipated the Lord's Supper. And then in Luke 22, we're going to read about the Lord's Supper itself. Again, how we're eating in the Lord's presence And then in Revelation 19, uh, we're going to hear about how this anticipates this future day when we all, as one people, the worldwide community of God, will be in God's presence eating at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So I pray that these texts will encourage your heart this morning. The readings will be a little bit longer this morning, only because these are stories, and stories just take a little longer to tell than just uh, simple lines of truth. And so uh, so please just kind of enjoy the, the stories as they're told. And then again, as I preach, I'll be tying these things together as we see the story of feasting with God in the scriptures. So uh, again, Nate will come up first, and then Ryan, and then Shauna, and then Claire. Genesis chapter 1, starting verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image. After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, Everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are instructions about the Passover in Exodus chapter 12, verses 7 through 14. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. 
Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. This is Luke 22, 7 through 20. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Revelation nineteen six through 9a. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and a cry like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage of the supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. Well, as we come to God's word this morning, I want to suggest to you that God's word, especially in these stories that we have just read about feasting with the Lord in his presence, offer to our souls a medicine that is deeper than any other medicine that the world can provide. In case you haven't noticed, we human beings are very complex and very deep creatures. We are even deeper and more complex than we ourselves know. As Scripture itself testifies to us in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We cannot even understand ourselves, much less can we treat ourselves. 
And so if we don't know how to fix ourselves, then it makes sense for us to go to God's word and to see what God's word has to teach us if we are to be made well, if we are to be made whole in the good news that the Bible tells us of. Now, it's important for me to say this at the outset because what I'm teaching on this morning may not at first seem like good medicine. It may not seem like very practical to you in some situation that you're facing today or this week. Nevertheless, I believe that if we really grasp what the Bible has to say to us on the point that I want to address this morning, then it will fill our hearts with so much hope, with such a deep hope that it will transform everything else about the way we live. So it's not going to tell us what to do in any given situation, but it is going to fill every struggle with new power and new vigor, given the hope that we see that lies ahead. The message that I have to speak on this morning talks about the ultimate aim of life itself. I wonder what you would say is the ultimate aim of life itself. How do you think that the life that we now live fits into that picture of the ultimate aim of life itself? And this is a really important question because when you understand the ultimate aim of life itself, it does give you the strength to endure things that you could otherwise never endure. Just take an analogy of a race for a moment. Imagine that there was a very grueling hundred-mile race. And now, let's say that the prize for winning the race was a prize of one dollar. And you don't even get any notoriety because they don't even publish who the winner is. All you get for completing this hundred-mile race is one dollar. Do you think that there would be a great many people interested in running this race? Would they put themselves through the torture of running a hundred miles in order to only receive one dollar on the other end? I do not believe there would be that many people that would run a hundred-mile race in order to receive one dollar. Now, consider there's a race of the same length, a hundred-mile race, but the reward is not one dollar. The reward is that somehow, if you complete this race, you will never be sick again. That's what's promised to you. Now, I imagine that if there were a 100-mile race, even though it's a 100 miles, if we knew that just completing the race would mean that we would never get sick again, there would be a lot of us training right now to run a 100 miles. And we would endure the agony of running a 100 miles knowing that we would never be sick again at the end of it. In the same way, if we see the prize of the Christian faith as being a very small and negligible prize, then you are not likely to endure much hardship or discomfort for the sake of obedience. But if, on the other hand, you see the prize as something being magnificent and wonderful beyond words, well, then you will be able to endure a great deal of hardship and struggle knowing the reward that awaits you. Now, The story of the Christian life is even better than this because it's not just a hundred miles of drudgery to only in the end get the reward, but what the scriptures teach is that God has implanted rewards into this life right now that are like a foretaste of that future reward that is coming. So just like a rainbow is a beam of pure white light, It is then by a prism broken up into all these different wavelengths so that you can see all these different wavelengths of color in the pure light. So there's many different aspects of our life here today that are like one wavelength of that ultimate hope that is coming. 
And in particular, that wavelength that I want to talk about this morning is that wavelength of rest and of feasting. Our, our ultimate hope, the ultimate goal of our calling, the ultimate aim of our lives is an aim of rest and of feasting. And God has given us a small, small foretaste of what that ultimate rest, what that ultimate feast will be like right now so that we have the strength to continue on in the journey having these little tastes of the reward that ultimately awaits us. To go back to that analogy of the 100-mile race that would make you never sick again, just imagine if like every 10 miles some ache or pain you had was taken away. Wouldn't that give you all the more strength to continue that journey, to make sure you made it to the end if as you were running, you could kind of feel the reward already kicking in? Well, beloved, that's what this gathering is supposed to be here, this gathering of saints and eating at the Lord's table. It is supposed to be a small feast that is a small foretaste of this great prize that awaits us. And I think that if we want to see just how glorious this prize is, then we need to see the testimony of all of Scripture to this great prize. So that's why this morning I want to start all the way back in Genesis. I want to touch in Exodus and then in Luke, and then we'll finally end in Revelation so that we can see just how glorious this reward is that God has prepared for us. Now, let me just say at the outset that what I'm going to be doing this morning could barely be called scratching the surface. (laughs) Scripture is just so rich and so full on all these points. Uh, So I'm just going to give you some pointers as to the way we ought to go. But if you're interested in learning more, there are many other good resources that are out there. Uh, In particular, one resource that I was helped by this week is the Bible Project podcast. I don't know if any of you like to listen to podcasts, but they have a whole seven or eight part series on the idea of rest in the Bible. And each one is an hour long and it's just full of great information, especially from the Old Testament about this picture of rest that is given. I was also really helped uh, this week by a short article by B.B. Warfield, The Fundamental Significance of the Lord's Supper. So again, if, if you are curious about learning more about these things that I'm speaking of this morning, I encourage you to go and seek those things out. So the way I am going to go about describing this reward this morning is in five main movements. First, I just want to start with a definition. What does the Bible mean by rest? What does the Bible mean by feasting? After that definition, second, we're going to look at Genesis 1 to 3, especially that passage that Nate read. After that, we're going to jump forward to the Passover and to the Exodus, the deliverance that God gave to the people from Egypt. After that, we'll go to the Lord's Supper itself in the Gospel of Luke. And then fifth, and in closing, we'll look at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So as you can tell with five points, again, I'm going to be moving fairly quickly. So first, a definition. What is rest in the Bible? What does rest mean in the Bible? Now, when we normally talk about rest in a conversation, we're thinking about things like taking a nap or sleeping or sitting down and relaxing. And these things are indeed connected to the biblical idea of rest, but they're not exactly the same thing as what the Bible means by rest. God's idea of rest is not merely napping. It's not merely relaxing. It's very full and rich in its scope. 
what our everyday idea of rest has in common with the biblical idea of rest is the idea of being at ease or relaxed. So just as that's what we mean when we say resting in our everyday language, that's what the Bible means when it uses the word rest. But what's different about the biblical idea of rest is that in the Bible, it's possible to both be at work and be at rest at the same time. Right? So in English, that wouldn't make much sense. You're either resting or you're working. But in Scripture, it's possible to be resting and working. And so you may be asking, how is this possible? But I actually don't think this concept is too hard to understand. I expect that all of us have had some experience at some point in our lives of doing work that we have so thoroughly enjoyed that it's like we didn't even notice the time passing by. It was really kind of a restful kind of work. That work itself doesn't have to be frustrating. It doesn't have to be laborious. That work can actually be easy and enjoyable. And this is what Scripture is talking about when it's talking about the work of rest. Maybe it was when you were in school and you had a favorite subject, or maybe you've been blessed enough to have a job right now that's something that you just really thoroughly enjoy and get pleasure from in and of itself. When I example from my own life is when I got to study geometry in my second year in high school, it's like I saw that first geometric proof, and it's like somebody was just speaking my heart language, right? I could just work on geometry all day long. This was amazing stuff, and it wasn't hard for me, even though at the same time I could look over to a classmate sitting right next to me, and it's just like his eyes were glazed over, and he could not get himself to do even the first thing in geometry. God designs each of us differently. But in that way, I was able to work on geometry and just thoroughly enjoy the work that I was doing and lose track of time. So originally, when God created us, he did create us to work. Even before any sin entered the world, before anything wrong was in the world, he created us to work. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So work is not something that entered human life only after sin. No, work is a good part of God's creation that will remain throughout all eternity. Even in the resurrection, each of us will have some job to do for all eternity. Yet the thing that is the result of the fall, the thing that is the result of sin, is futility in work or frustration in work. That idea of someone's eyes glazing over and just wondering when this job will be done. That is the result of the fall. When God cursed mankind after they sinned, this is Genesis 3, starting in the second half of verse 17. It says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Notice especially that last sentence. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Just the basic sustenance of our lives would suddenly become difficult and painful work. So whereas before Adam had work in the Garden of Eden, but that work was easy and enjoyable. God himself was watering the ground, Genesis says. And so every little thing that Adam did, he could just see it flourish. He could see it grow. And so all of his work was pleasant and he saw fruitfulness from all of his work. And yet after the curse, 
we see this promise of thorns and thistles entering in. So suddenly, instead of trimming a branch and the next day coming back and seeing three more pieces of fruit pop up, he comes back the next day and all of a sudden the weeds are choking out that thing that he's been working so hard to grow. We don't have to deal with this problem so much anymore in the era of cloud computing, but I remember what a perfect picture it was of the fall. Back in the days when you always had to click save on the documents you were working on, how often you would be working on something, you know, for hours at a time, you'd forget to click save, and computer would shut off or something would happen, and then all that work would be lost. That's exactly what work is like under the fall. It's like wasted effort. It's like doing all this only to see so little progress. That is the toil and trouble of work. And so God is contrasting work outside of the garden, work after the fall, with work inside the garden, work before the fall. As long as Adam had been in this beautiful Garden of Eden, his work had been pleasant and easy and enjoyable, full of fruit. But as soon as sin enters the world and Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, work becomes painful toil and difficult, as if creation itself is starting to work against you and frustrate all of your best plans. Work is no longer rest. Work becomes slavery. Now, I use that word slavery very intentionally, as that is the word used in the Bible to express this new reality of work. Slavery is the condition that no human desires to be in, because in slavery, all you experience is the sweat and drudgery of work, and you never get to enjoy the rewards. And that is so often what life in our world is like today. Even though we can praise God that none of us in this room have to work as slaves, our work can be slavery-like if we feel that we are working every day just trying to get ahead in the least bit, only to discover that we're actually on a treadmill that seems to be going nowhere. This is the slavery that every human being experiences in the world today as we work and work just to survive and so rarely find ourselves making progress or getting ahead. Now again, the point of all this is merely to put biblical definitions in your head. So when you hear me say rest, don't immediately think of just sitting down and going to sleep. Likewise, when you hear me say work, don't automatically think of something that's very hard and difficult. And finally, when you hear me say slavery, don't only think about the institution of slavery, but think about a life that is filled with hard work and yet no rewards. Now, in laying out things in this way, I hope you can start to see how rest itself is the ultimate aim of human existence in the scriptures. Rest is the ultimate aim of human existence. On the other hand, we see that slavery is the ultimate curse of human existence. Just as there is nothing better than rest, there is nothing worse than slavery. And so given this reality, I want to spend the rest of this message looking at the glorious portrayal of rest in the scriptures and see how God's plan of redemption leads us out of slavery and leads us into rest. So, beginning in Genesis, we see resting and feasting are part 
of the creation story itself. In Genesis 2, verse 1, we read, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God himself rested on the seventh day. All of creation was finished in six days, and the seventh day was a day of sheer rest, sheer enjoyment of all that God had made. Indeed, one thing that we will find is from this moment on, from this seventh day of creation on, the number seven throughout Scripture becomes this symbol of perfect rest and peace, the symbol of completion, the aim of creation itself. Now, the seventh day was not simply a day of rest. It was also a day of feasting. And so in Genesis 1.28, we read that God blessed them. God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit you shall have them for food. So this big, long explanation to say that I've given you food. And then even the the next verse repeats the same idea. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has a breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. (laughs) Why does Genesis care so much about telling us that God has given us food? Well, it's because that seventh day, that day that was coming right after day six, was supposed to be this day when God's people, when Adam and Eve and all creation could rest and enjoy this abundance of food that God had provided. A little earlier in Genesis, when we read about the Garden of Eden, we read that in the garden was every fruit that was pleasing to the eye and good for food. God had given his people an abundance And he meant to give them a day of rest where they could enjoy that abundance. God was setting a table for his people. He was giving them a day of rest. He was saying to Adam and Eve, he was saying, Here, see this feast that I have laid before you. Tomorrow will be the day for you to enjoy all this food with me in the garden. When the word Sabbath is first used in the scriptures. It's in the book of Exodus, chapter 16, verse 23. It says that he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. And then he gives instructions about food. He says, bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. He's saying, get ready tomorrow to rest and to eat. Again, this idea of completion, that there is no more work to be done, that all there is left is to enjoy the generosity that God has already given. Therefore, the ultimate picture of rest that we are given in Scripture is man and woman sitting in a place of God-given abundance, eating with God. This is the culmination of all that the Scriptures speak of when the Scriptures speak of rest. 
And recall that we are not merely speaking metaphorically here. Eden was a real place. Adam and Eve were real people. God is a real God. When God provided this food for them and he provided this garden for them and he gave them a day of rest, he meant for Adam and Eve to actually come into his presence and he meant to actually sit down with them and enjoy a meal, the abundance that he himself had provided. This was God's design from the beginning. Now, fast forward from Adam and Eve. What happened? Well, we know that Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They became exiled from the place of abundance. They became exiled from the Garden of Eden, and they had been made to slave away for their food. Now, over the course of thousands of years, God turns this small picture of humanity's fall into sin, and to a much grander picture when God's people, thousands upon thousands of God's people, become literal slaves in Egypt. So their slavery in Egypt was a picture of the slavery that Adam and Eve had to endure after they were removed from the garden. God's people were in bondage. They were slaving away day after day to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh only made their lives harder and harder as time goes on. God sends a deliverer to his people in Moses. And what is the very first request that Moses makes to Pharaoh? This is Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. Moses says to Pharaoh, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Moses was asking Pharaoh, saying, God wants to eat with his people. He wants to have a feast with his people. Would you let them go just for a short time so they can go into the wilderness and they can feast with God? But of course, Pharaoh said no. He refused to release Israel from their bondage. Now, I won't take the time now to recount all of God's mighty acts for his people in order to deliver them from slavery in Egypt. He sent many plagues. He punished Egypt in many ways, but Pharaoh continually refused until God planned one final plague, the death of the firstborn. God said that he would send his angel of death and he would kill all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And after that curse had come upon the land of Egypt, then Pharaoh would finally be able to let God's people go. And so we come to Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 7, where we read the story of the Passover. And in those verses, God instructs his people how they are to eat this meal. It says that they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. 
The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then in closing, he says, this day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. In other words, the blood of this lamb that they were to eat was the blood by which the very lives of their firstborn had been purchased. Without this blood, they are dead. Beloved, if you're here this morning and you are not under the blood of Christ, do you know that you are dead in your sins? That God's angel of death will come one day and he will slay everyone that does not trust in the Son? It is by the blood of Christ that we now have our very lives atoned for. Just as these people of Israel had their lives atoned for in this Passover meal. Now, again, we read that this Passover meal was a feast to the Lord that they were to keep forever and ever. And so even after they are delivered from Egypt, they continue to eat this Passover meal to remember this great act of redemption that the Lord had done to free them from slavery. And indeed, based upon this Passover meal, God gives to his people a whole system of feasts. And one of the remarkable things about the whole system of feasts that God gives is all of these feasts are based on the number seven. So just as the seventh day was this day of rest, was the original day when God wanted to be with his people and feast with them, he gives his people seven feasts, seven Sabbaths, where they are to rejoice and feast before the Lord. As we already read, the Passover was the first feast that they were to have, but immediately following Passover was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasted for seven days. And then after that, they took seven weeks, seven times seven, 49 weeks, and then they had another feast. And then after that feast, you got to the seventh month, and then they had three more feasts in the seventh month. And so all of these feasts, all throughout their calendar, all these Sabbaths were to remind God's people that God wanted to rest with them and feast with them, and that this was the ultimate aim of the Passover itself, freedom from slavery, freedom from bondage. And it doesn't even end there. Every seven years, they were to have a year of release where the Jewish people would release anyone that they had captive in slavery. And every 49 years, seven times seven, was to be a year of jubilee, which was the ultimate year of rest, where all slaves would be released, all land would go back to its original owners. Farmers would not do any work. You would simply live off the abundance of the land. And so it was a year of ultimate rest. By all these patterns of seven, God was trying to point to his people again and again and again that what I long to have with you is a feast of rest. That This is what I made you for. You were not made to slave away. You were made to rest in my presence. And so, these signs that were given through all these feasts, through this Passover, was ultimately fulfilled thousands of years later when God did send a deliverer, a new Moses, to free his people from slavery. And that new deliverer, that new Moses, gave his people a new meal. 
So just like Passover was the meal of deliverance from Egypt, so the Lord's Supper is our meal of deliverance. Again, Jesus even instituted the Lord's Supper on the night of Passover. What, what could this mean? What could this mean that Jesus frees us from slavery and that the Lord's Supper is a meal of deliverance, a meal of freedom from bondage? Well, it means that there is a sense in which all of humanity is presently stuck in a condition of slavery. We are all stuck in a condition of work that is given over to futility. I mean, we can see this in our actual work sometimes, but primarily what this is pointing to is the futility that every human has experienced in trying to deliver ourselves from sinful attitudes and habits. Every human being on earth has experienced this, how we can work, we can weep, we can read every book, we can attempt the most rigid discipline, but no matter how hard we work, no matter what we do, we can never free ourselves from the bondage of sin. It is a slavery that has no deliverance, and all humans are slaves in this way. We are all born into this slavery to sin. And so the rest that God wants to give us is not simply the opportunity to finally be able to sit back and do nothing. No, the rest that he wants to give us is rest from the slavery that is sin, from the drudgery of sin. You see, every idol, idols are the source of all of our sins, and every idol promises some sort of rest and peace. But idols are just like practical jokesters who promise something just beyond our reach and it looks really nice and really appealing and so we go after it and then just as we're about to get it, our idols just pull the rug out from under our feet. And so we fall over realizing that we can never get that thing that the idol is promising. We can never find that rest. It's just this continual effort of getting up, going after it, falling down, getting up, going after it, falling down. And I believe that everyone here has experienced this in their life in some measure. This seeming addiction to things that we don't know why we're addicted to. Why do we keep going after this thing when we know we can never succeed? Beloved, it's because of idolatry. It's because of slavery. This is what slavery is. It is futility in continual working, 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 and getting nowhere. This is precisely what sin is. And yet, beloved, the good news in the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we can be freed from the slavery of sin and we can come to know the rest of God. And how is it that we come to God? Does God say, now if you're going to turn away from idols and come to me, let me give you a list of 20 things that you have to do and then you will be mine? No, beloved, the beauty of coming to God is that as soon as we come to God, we come into a place of abundance where everything is already provided for us. This is the meaning of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. That the work of redemption, the work of belonging to God has been totally and completely performed. And the only thing remaining for us to do is to believe. Simply have faith that the death of Christ really did perform the work that Jesus said it performed. And if you believe that, 
If you will have faith in the Son of God, then you are ushered in to this new Garden of Eden, into this new place of abundance. You are given a new meal, and you are given rest. You are given restful work because you are given work to do, but suddenly the work that we do in Christ Jesus always flourishes, always promises abundance. Just as Jesus says, he is the vine, we are the branches. When we are connected to him, we bear much fruit. And so when we come to the Lord's Supper, this is what we symbolize and this is what we recognize, that God has delivered us from slavery to sin and he has brought us into the land of rest to enjoy a feast with him. Yet when we look around us today, we realize that even though we can paint this beautiful picture with the Lord's Supper, it everywhere does seem to be contradicted by our own experience and by the fallen reality of the world around us. We all still continue to sin. And so much of our work still does end in futility rather than fruit. And so we're left with this question, has God failed? Does this plan of redemption that God was working out through Jesus Christ, has it just not worked? No. Jesus says that as long as we eat this supper, we proclaim his death until he comes. As long as we eat this supper, we proclaim his death until he comes. What does that mean? It means that by eating this meal, by eating the Lord's Supper, this meal of rest, we proclaim that a day is coming when we will not merely have rest in part, but we will have rest in whole. And that day is the day of Christ's return and forevermore. You see, beloved, what we have now is a down payment, a foretaste of a future reality. The Lord's Supper that we eat will not make us completely perfect. It will not deliver us from all sin, but it does loose the shackles of sin so that we are no longer slaves to sin, so that we now have power to overcome any and every sin. And yet, the day that we are still waiting for is that day when sin is no more, when slavery is no more, when we get to enjoy perfect rest and perfect peace with God. And do you know what the sign is of that perfect rest that we will ultimately attain? It is a feast with the Lord in a place of abundance. It is a meal that is even better than that seventh day meal that Adam and Eve were to share. It's better than the Passover meal. It is better than the Lord's Supper. It is called a marriage supper of the Lamb. Our meal with God will not merely be a meal between creator and the created. It will not merely be a meal between parent and child. It will be a meal of a bride and her husband. Beloved, can you imagine anything more staggering, more beautiful than the thought of sitting down at a table with God himself? A table that he himself has set with all the best foods that we could possibly imagine, better than anything that exists on earth today. And God saying, I am your husband. You are my pure and spotless bride. Welcome into my eternal 
feast. Beloved, today we are eating by faith, but soon we will eat by sight. When we take the Lord's Supper now, yes, we look at this bread and we look at this wine and we remember, yes, this is the body of Jesus Christ that was broken for me. This is the blood of Jesus Christ that is shed for me. And we have to see that with eyes of faith. We have to trust that the Lord himself has made this provision for us. But the day is coming, beloved, when we won't need faith anymore. We won't just have to trust in these things anymore. We will be able to see with our own eyes the glory of the Lord at a table with us, us dressed pure and spotless white, eating at the table of the Lord. Now, in closing, just two points of application from these glorious and beautiful realities. First, I exhort you to flee from the slavery that is sin, beloved. As beautiful as sin may look, as rewarding as it may feel sometimes, it is slavery. It will never satisfy your heart. It will never give you rest. It will never give you a feast. It will only make you starved and hungry. And beloved, if you do not cut the shackles from your feet right now, you may well find yourself chained for all eternity. God is willing and he is eager to help you. He welcomes you into his rest, but he does ask that you cry out to him. He says, knock at my door and it will be open to you. And so, beloved, if you feel yourself chained to sin this morning, any sort of habit or patterns of life that you just cannot get free from, knock on the door of Jesus Christ even this morning, and you will be made free by his blood and by his body. So flee from sin, beloved. But second, I just encourage you to let this glorious hope lighten the burden of whatever degree to which you feel slavery today. The working in futility that you may feel today, whatever it is that's frustrating you. If you're a mother, maybe it's your mothering that just feels like drudgery sometimes. If you're a father, maybe it's your fatherhood that does. Maybe it's the place you go and work nine to five. But know that whatever futility you feel will not last long. The day is coming when all of our work will be rewarded. Every last effort we will receive back tenfold. And so labor in hope. Whether it is mothering or volunteering or studying or pastoring, whatever labor it is that you have, beloved, don't get discouraged. A glorious feast is coming and the down payment of that feast is already here. God is unwinding the effects of the curse even as we speak so that our labor can be more and more fruitful, less and less slavery, and more and more rest. And the day of perfect rest is coming. And so labor hard in this short breath of life that we have. And beloved, you will receive a crown of righteousness at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so with that, beloved, let me begin our time of prayer. I encourage you to pray for our church body, for needs around the world, as we consider these glorious things that God has done. Heavenly Father, it is remarkable to me, Lord, that you would promise us sinful 
creatures, an eternal day of resting and feasting, that you would promise us a marriage to you yourself. Lord, you are so kind to us and so good to us. I pray, Lord, that you would grow our hearts, God, grow our minds so that we may apprehend the greatness of your plans for us. God, help us not to run hard on this time we have here below for a very meager prize, but rather, Lord, help us to hold before ourselves the true and glorious prize that you are preparing for us, that we may run hard the race that you have given to us. Would you hear our prayers now in Jesus' name?